I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Practical Neoplatonism. Welcome back. It's been a little while since our last episode. Uh, I graduated from Divinity School in May, and then I had a, a summer fellowship at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., and uh, then, you know, in rapid succession, Isabel started her Ph.D., Greg indicated he was feeling a little too busy to continue and um, things just kind of fell apart for a little while but I enjoyed this very much and uh, I hope that uh, there are others who do too. I think Isabel will come back uh, eventually when she feels she can manage it with her work with her current workload. So I guess it's time for another sort of uh, rebirth of the show and you know for a little while now a couple years I've had some ideas kind of uh coming to the foreground some some new interests uh that which retrospectively i see you know connect back to things i've been interested in uh and and uh thinking about for a really long time and it became a really passionate new interest when i was uh in, in dc on, on on my fellowship there i was researching uh eastern european hasidic religious leaders the the rebbes just you know what their stories were in the holocaust what happened to the various lineages what happened especially to the individual religious leaders the rebbes who were the heads of these uh mystical jewish dynasties and uh, i ended up focusing on a couple of them who were uh rescued through the uh coordination of of intelligence agents in poland American intelligence agents and uh, a Hungarian, a Hungarian counterintelligence agent. This is at the end of World War II when um, this is when the extermination started happening on a really, really serious large scale. And um, so these this these different members of the uh, uh, intelligence communities of various interested parties undertook operations to rescue a couple very high profile. Rebes uh, from from occupied Poland, so I ended up focusing on that. And uh, just the the point of this is just that that's really kind of when the dam broke, and a long interest that I'd had in in I guess certain areas of study, you know, uh, really came came to become the uh, my main thing, you know, that I've been thinking about and interested in, and and inter- interested in moving forward in. So. So moving forward, I'd really like to uh, move into this, and uh, I'd really like to start opening up some of these ideas, and in particular, in today's episode, and maybe the next couple episodes, we'll see what happens. There's a paper I'd like to write, which I'm going to talk out and uh, uh, share the main outline and general argument and, and ideas that I have in the foreground of my mind right now, and that the things that I'm most interested in. And I struggle. I'm still trying to come up with a with a name for the new reincarnation of the show, but um, the best description I have of of the general shape, you know, of of this of this general area of what I'm interested in, I would call it something like um, the mysticism of security studies. I so I also considered calling it the poetry of safety. I was trying to be, um, I don't know poetic or something but rather than trying to explain a whole bunch of background to how I came to this point I think I'd like to just go ahead and and try and jump right in and promise that if you uh, stick with me or hear me out hopefully it'll start to make sense what I mean by that and uh, the pieces will start to come together why somebody from divinity school would be so interested and excited and passionate about the work of the intelligence community and the tradecraft of intelligence analysis. So as I mentioned, hopefully this is going to turn into a paper. And on that note, in the International Spy Museum in D.C., there's a a part of the um, of the main exhibit that uh that talks about um 
espionage in the ancient world. And it has two quotes on the wall from um, from or about the Hebrew Bible. Um, the first of them is, the first quote is from Numbers chapter 13, and it's verses 17 to 20. Um, and the quote goes, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up there into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. So um, what's going on is that, you know, the Hebrews, the Jews who have been separated from uh, the Egyptians and wandering in the desert for 40 years are now coming to Canaan, and uh, Moses is sending a couple of his... um, close advisors or maybe you know generals to scout the uh territory that they're about to attack uh to try and take over and this is where when people when anybody talks about espionage in the bible which isn't a whole uh, isn't very often from what i can see but uh this is usually where people start the story when they're talking about uh espionage in the bible one of the problems with that is that uh, I, the word that's translated as, you know, Moses sent them to spy or, you know, he sent spies. The word that's translated as spy in English, in Hebrew, I don't think, I'm not 100% sure that, that was, that's the, what, exactly what they meant. You know, what it, it, that it, it, tra- it translates to contemporary practice of espionage. But beyond that, I think there is a much, much richer story about espionage and intelligence operations in the Hebrew Bible that starts much, much earlier than the book of Numbers. So, starting from the very, very beginning, the first chapter of Genesis, first couple of chapters, this is the... Um, part you might remember from Sunday school as, you know, God creating the world in seven days. On each of those days, you know, God is saying to a certain aspect of uh, uh, creation, like, you know, let there be this, let there, let there, let there be that, or the, 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 his, God's act of speaking um, is really a sort of commandment that brings reality brings the things th- that he he is saying into existence. And then after they've been externalized through his speech act of creation, at each stage he's seeing what he's created and he's specifically seeing that it's good. The only exception is on the day that he creates humans. The only thing he creates the the text doesn't say specifically he saw that he had created humans and he saw that they were good he did that doesn't it doesn't say that the the only thing he doesn't see as good is humans he doesn't like he doesn't say it's good doesn't say doesn't say humans are good doesn't say humans are bad just doesn't say anything at the end of that day god sees all that he had created and sees that all of it is good but there's this um omission you know, about specifically seeing humans as good that's uh, potentially very significant. But the point is, um, there's this act of perception there that uh, he's, uh, God is seeing. You know, God is seeing. And what, what is he seeing? He's seeing good. He's seeing all of creation is good. That's what happens in the first chapter. And then um, God never sees anything that is not good. Certainly not anything that is bad, and the first time we see that kind of language uh, is after the story of the creation of man is being retold in this. I believe the second chapter, um, God sees Adam. He sees man, and he says, "It's not good for man to be alone." This is the first thing that God has seen and said. It's not good. 
it's not good for man to be alone. And that's when he creates the woman. He puts Adam to sleep and takes the rib from his side. All right, so moving forward, there's this tree. It's in the center of the garden, in the middle, in the middle of the garden. And God says to the man, don't eat from that tree or you'll die. He's, you know, to paraphrase that, he's saying, that's, it's a tree of death. Don't eat from the tree. The, the tree of death. Don't eat from that death tree in the center of the garden. And then the snake comes along the serpent and approaches the woman and, and says, you know, did God really say don't you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And she says, well, God said we can eat from all the trees in the garden except this one. And he said, don't eat from it or you'll die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die, but... God knows that when you eat from it, you are going to become a God like him, knowing good and evil. So what's happened here is um, there's a sort of inversion. God said, it's a tree of death. The serpent says, no, it's not. It's a tree of God-like magical powers. The word that God had spoken, saying, the, um, the tree is bad for you. The serpent is turning that upside down, a literal inversion, taking the exact same thing that God had said and saying, the opposite of that is true. It's not bad for you, it's good for you. And what's more, there is a hidden side of God that he's hiding from you that's bad. God has these intentions towards you that are not in your best interest. They're in his best interest. He wants to keep all the good stuff for himself and prevent you from reaching your full potential as godlike beings like him. And so he told you a lie. And then the humans eat from the tree and they perceive that they're naked, which they hadn't been aware of before. And there is a wordplay. I feel like I've talked about this on the show before, but just to briefly review it, there's this wordplay in Hebrew on the word for naked and the word for being sneaky or it's usually translated as crafty. Arum. The word for naked, like the humans were naked, Arum. The snake, when the snake, you know, when he's first introduced, you know, the text says he was the sneakiest, the craftiest of all the creatures that the Lord God had created. And so this word, there's this wordplay between the snake is crafty, but being crafty clearly has some close connection with being naked. And the humans were naked, but they didn't know it before. So with this wordplay, it's like they are crafty. They have this snake-like characteristic inside themselves, but they don't know it yet. So they do the thing that they've been commanded not to do. And the result of it is that they realize that they have this uh, characteristic in themselves, which is um, a snake-like characteristic or a an aspect of craftiness, you know? Um, and their first reaction is that once they perceive it, once they see this side of themselves, this aspect of themselves that they couldn't see before, they want to hide it. They want to hide themselves, they want to hide their nakedness. Why? Because they're afraid. We know this because when God comes back to the garden and calls out to Adam saying, where are you, where are you? Um, Adam is hiding. And why does he hide? He's, he's scared because he knows God's going to be angry. He knows that he did something wrong and he's going to be punished. And so he's uh, scared of the consequences and he's scared of God's wrath. He's scared of getting you know, kicked out, which is what's going to happen. But what I especially want to draw attention to is that uh, aspect of the narrative that's about the perception of good and evil. Perceptions, um, perceiving, you know, your environment and the people around you as good or bad. And up to this point, God has really only seen all of creation as good. Good, good, good. Everything's good. Everything's good. The only thing that was ever not good was man's loneliness, you know? 
now what the what does the serpent see he sees a hidden reality beyond what's manifest what's apparent this hidden reality is bad and his words cause the woman and her husband to perceive i suggest god as bad and i believe that's what it means for them to eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil an op a question which i'll just leave open for the moment is is the serpent bad was the serpent bad to i don't know what we might say project his shadow aspect on god and say god is is bad was it really like the serpent was bad and he was attributing his own bad characteristic to god i don't know but there's something going on here with perception and specifically the perception of a hidden reality specifically within that perception of hidden reality it's a perception of um hidden bad intentions hidden malice and then the outcome as i'm reading it today is the serpent suggested god has this bad aspect this this hidden aspect of malice inside himself and then once the humans you know eat that fruit accept his his words believe him and perceive god that way that is the eating of the fruit and and it backfires what actually ends up happening is that they in having attributed this hidden negative aspect to god they actually realize oh i'm the one who had this hidden negative aspect of myself that i wasn't aware of but i'm getting a bit ahead of myself to bring this back what what does this have to do with espionage what does it have to do with um the intelligence community well in a very real sense especially particularly within the um discipline of um counterintelligence like that is specifically about um finding out the hidden malicious intentions of uh your enemies you know that's that's what they do and there's also a sense in which you could perceive what the serpent has done in this situation as a sort of information warfare um propaganda maybe an information uh operation um and i think it's not without significance that um within the public relations world there's a certain kind of activity called black magic it it's meant metaphorically you know them working their black magic but that's the term that they use and what they mean by it is it's a, a like uh the sort of black magic tricks of of pr or propaganda are the ways that you make your enemy look bad you know by saying certain things about them you know publicly that cause people to perceive them as in a certain negative light which i think is you know you just have to turn on the news and watch anything political that's happening in the united states today to see this going on you know left and right that uh um politics has become almost exclusively at this point about making people look bad you know that's how you win um so in any case espionage is you know spying it's it's um seeing what is hidden it is uh specifically uh about threat detection and as i hope we're starting to uh see you know the first few chapters the opening chapters of uh genesis are all about perception specifically perception of good and perception of evil i would even go so far as to say um it's about states of consciousness and transformations of consciousness So already right at the very beginning of the book there is a thread that connects the um the mythical history of the world to the disciplines of um intelligence gathering intelligence analysis espionage spycraft 
forecasting, you know, um, what's going to happen if you do this, if you eat this fruit, are you going to die, are you going to become a god, you know, um, that kind of, you know, forecasting based on intelligence analysis. It's there if you uh, want to read it, the book that way, which uh, I obviously am very excited to do. So I want to turn now to another very important episode in the Hebrew Bible where intelligence activity, but especially and particularly um, secret police, come into the story. And um, and that is uh, in the book of Job. But just before moving on, I want to mention one more thing. I have one more picture that I took at the... Um, International Spy Museum in, in Washington, D.C. They have another reference to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's a little um, sign that talks about the writing on the wall. A mysterious message, it says. The prophet Daniel was an interpreter of dreams and messages. He can be considered the first cryptanalyst. He found meaning where others could not. During a feast thrown by King Bathazar of Babylon... Aramaic words were written on the wall by a disembodied hand. Only Daniel could interpret their meaning, that God had numbered the king's days, had weighed them, had weighed him and found him wanting, and would divide his kingdom between the Persians and the Medes. Daniel understood that the unworthy king would be defeated that evening, and his kingdom partitioned. The prophecy came true. So I think that's really cool. They're they're um they're characterizing Daniel as a you know as a cryptanalyst as someone who decodes hidden or encoded messages i'm not necessarily certain that the curator at the spy museum intended this but what i also read in this is an implicit connection between contemporary intelligence activity and prophecy which i think there's a, a an interesting argument to be made for parallels at least um with uh, uh, that's another one of the main services that they provide to their clients. The intelligence community makes uh, predictions about the future. They make forecasts. They say, you know, this is what we think is going to happen in the future based on the information that's available to us. I have a lot to say about cryptography and ancient religion generally, um, what we'd call scriptures specifically, but I'm going to save that for another episode, and I hope that I will come back to it and really do it, because I think it's really cool, really interesting subject. So moving on to the book of Job. Um, I think many people like myself who grew up either uh, secular or who weren't raised in the Jewish religion aren't necessarily familiar or aware of the fact that um, the serpent in the garden in, in the book of Genesis is never called Satan. And in fact, there's no one in the entire Hebrew Bible and in, in any Hebrew scriptures by that name. Um, that's something that is uh, uniquely Christian. And um, there's, a, there's a story. You know, it has, of course, it has its roots in Judaism. But um, as a independent character with... Uh, that proper name Satan that that is Christian and it doesn't exist in Judaism. Having said that, of course, um, there are the like any dramatic narrative. You know, the texts in the Hebrew Bible they have antagonists. There are bad guys, and uh, I think you could make a case that characters like Pharaoh or uh, Amalek uh, play the role of Satan within Judaism, but. What the point I'm getting to is that there wasn't, you know, that it's not uncommon to take it for granted that the serpent in the Garden in Eden is Satan, when the reality is, is quite a bit more complicated. The word Satan in Hebrew means uh, adversary, and uh, the word does occur a few times in the Hebrew Bible, but it's not a proper name. It's used the way we use the word adversary or enemy in English. It's a noun but not a name. And the closest the Hebrew scriptures come to uh, having that sort of uh, a character who is named Satan, you know, is in the book of Job, where uh, there's a character called Ha-Satan. Ha just means 
the in in Hebrew, you know, so Hasatan is the adversary. And uh, so there is a character, uh, an angel in the divine court who has that title of Hasatan, the adversary. And so this is the first time that that word or title starts to kind of emerge more associated with a particular character in that way that we understand the character of Satan to ex to exist, you know, at least in a uh, literary sense, existing as a character whose proper name is Satan. And so this character exists in the introduction and conclusion of the book of Job. And if you happen to have uh, a Bible that has the Hebrew text in it, you you can look, you can just look at the book of Job and you can see that the introduction and the conclusion look very, very, very different from the rest of the text, just by like a simple, you know, glance at the page. Even if you don't understand the language, you can just look at it and see something's very, very different about these sections. And most um, scholars, I think all scholars, are uh, in pretty much unanimous agreement that the introduction and conclusion were added at a much later date in the story, in the text composition as, it, uh, as we've inherited it today. I don't think that that's super important for our purposes here to, uh, you know, the, the historical criticism of the uh, book of Job. But one way or the other, this character, Hasatan, only exists in the, uh, only appears in the introduction and conclusion. And so those scenes are taking place in heaven, uh, and um, Hasatan, the adversary, is, well, so God is bragging about his uh, servant Job, and uh, how pious he is, and um, uh, how much he loves God. And Hasatan, the adversary, argues. He's saying, he's not pious. He just says nice things about you because you've given him everything he ever wanted. Uh, the second you start taking away all those blessings, he'll curse you to your face. And so God and uh, Hasatan enter into this kind of wager. You know, they have a bet about whether God, uh, whether whether Job is really pious or... Um, whether he'll lose his piety very quickly the second God afflicts him with adversity. And so God gives Hasatan permission to take, to bring um, afflictions to Job, uh, to kill his sons, to bring sickness, to kill his livestock and his crops, and, you know, to take away all the blessings and the wealth. Um, so Hasatan is kind of acting in this demonic this demonic role, you know, he is the uh, the the evil spirit that brings affliction to Job, you know, one thing after another after another. But that part of the plot actually takes up a very, very, very small portion of uh, the text in the book. The overwhelming majority of the book consists of Job's laments, where he, in fact, is complaining about God and um, and accusing God very directly of being, I don't know, a bad God, a bad guy, you know? So one way that uh, scholars have interpreted that introductory scene and concluding scene with Hasatan in the divine court, the court is like a court of law, and the uh, Hasatan, the adversary, is uh, like a prosecuting attorney, bringing accusations, bringing charges against uh, Job. And so there's this interesting dynamic at play here where Hasatan, the, the angel, who is called the adversary, is in the role as the accuser, and then he brings, uh, you know, these afflictions to Job, and Job in turn becomes the accuser of God. So it's as if this uh, scene that was initially a courtroom scene inside, you know, the divine court with where God is the king and the judge, Job is on trial and Hasatan, the adversary, is the prosecuting attorney, is now widened that it is all of humanity, all of history, all of uh, the world is the court and God is on trial now, and Job is the 
accuser of God. And my impression, and I think an impression that many people have when they read this book, is that it doesn't really have a very satisfying conclusion. When God appears to Job, he doesn't address any of the accusations. All he says is, who are you to accuse me? You know, were you there when I created the universe? Were you there when I tamed the sea monsters or, you know, uh, separated the, 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 you know, made the mountains and the seas and the sky? Like, but he doesn't ever actually answer Job directly. All he says is, what do you know? And I have plenty more to say about that, but what we're really, you know, the reason Job is really on the table today is for the fact that when God gives permission to Hasatan, uh, the the adversary, to uh, go out and, you know, afflict Job and try and try and instigate him, try and get him to see if he'll attack God, scholars uh, are also, you know, pretty much unanimously in agreement that that character is based on the secret police who really existed and who uh, uh, were operating in the court of the king of Persia around the time this book was written, or at least that part of the book was written. And in real life, these agents of the Persian king were what we call uh, agents provocateurs. They go undercover out in the world and try and get people to commit crimes so that they can then arrest them for ha- for having committed those crimes. That's what an agent pr- provocateur is. So I guess in my own mind, this was one of the early points where I guess what I might call a portion of God's special forces, which we might be inclined to identify as demons or or devils, or at the very least, punishing angels, you know, wrathful angels, angel in the sense meaning like messenger or representative from God, his agents, um, his, a, a special agent working for God in that capacity. The first time I started to associate that sort of, I'll call it the, a, like a demonic order, you know, for lack of a better term at the moment. But um, this was one of the first times in my own mind where I started to associate that order with secret police. Secret police being associated also in my mind with the um, intelligence agents around the Russian Tsar right at the end of um, the Russian monarchy right before the Bolshevik Revolution and these intelligence agents around the Russian Tsar. There's a really interesting debate. I'll, I'll just say contemporary uh there there's some you know more recent papers that have questioned this but traditionally since the 19 i don't know 50s and for uh, till the till the present day most people have attributed the anti-semitic conspiracy book uh the protocols of the learned elders of zion most scholars have uh attributed that they've said that it was written by a certain agent who belonged to the Russian Okhrana, which was the Russian secret police. And the Protocols of Zion, as you may or may not know, played a significant role in the Nazi Holocaust. Um, That book, to a large degree, but also more broadly, just Russian anti-Semitism, was inherited by the Nazis and helped fuel their, their atrocities. And going back, you know, to what we've been talking about a little earlier in this episode, the Protocols of Zion are a work of propaganda. They, it is a book of conspiracy theories, and it is specifically about making a group of people look bad. It attributes this secret, diabolical activity going on behind the scenes in the Jewish community 
these you know this this plot to take over the world and to oppress the non-Jewish people. And my understanding is that many of the Nazi soldiers, uh, the young men who were at the forefront of enacting the um, the Nazi anti-Jewish program, when they um, were started rounding up Jews, they very wholeheartedly believed in this story of um, you know the Jewish conspiracy and what they were going to find when they broke down the doors and um, uh, found these you know diabolical evil uh, Jews you know I don't know hoarding gold and plotting evil in their homes and they were shocked like the soldiers who believed this you know sincerely they were astonished to find just poor people in their shabby apartments making I don't know potato soup or something you know propaganda can be very 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 powerful and it can alter the way you see reality certainly the way you interpret reality so in this brief discussion here of the serpent in the book of Genesis and Hasatan, the adversary in the book of Job, I've really just scratched the surface of the topic of reading themes of espionage and uh, psychological operations in the Hebrew Bible. Before wrapping up, I just do want to mention one more appearance of a serpent in the Torah, and this this is the scene where um, the serpent serves not as a symbol of affliction, but as a symbol of healing. And that is um, while the Jews are wandering in the desert, they complain and you know they badmouth God, and and they're hit with a, a skin disease. I've heard it um, is understood at least by some of the uh, rabbis, I've contemporary rabbis I've encountered. Uh, it's uh, uh, understood as uh, lupus, the skin skin affliction. But anyways, the um, they said, you know, some bad accusations uh, about God and um, were afflicted with the skin disease. And the way that they were healed is uh, God told Moses to uh, make a, I think it's a bronze serpent, and put place it on uh, a, a pole, I guess, a staff, and lift it up. And when the, uh, uh, you know, the afflicted Jewish people would look up to it, it would heal them. And now, finally, if you want to read all this backwards to the Genesis story, I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Why is this tree, if it's so dangerous, what is it doing in the garden in the first place? And same for the snake, why is he there? To to see the that snake, the serpent, as an agent of God, that they were being tested. God put this tree there, told them, don't eat it, and then sent this agent provocateur to test them to see what they were going to do. Would they follow God or would they follow the adversary? You know, it's it's an interesting way to read it. So that's the, the last thing I want to add to this today. But um, I guess just to review, there's this long-running theme about um, perception of good and perception of evil, specifically the perception of evil. And there's some ambiguity about whether the evil that is perceived is really there or not. In the garden, God told the people, the man and the woman, if uh, on the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. And the serpent says, you won't die. You'll become like gods, knowing good and evil. And the outcome of eating the fruit, they don't die. And the woman conceives a baby and gives birth in this like godlike act of creation with her husband and um and so it seems like you know a troubling point of the story for me was god telling the truth or was the snake telling the truth or is there even an even more complicated possibility where each of them was speaking the truth but the serpent was misdirecting attention to 
draw attention away from some you know some some bad thing they were doing i don't know but um the point is that um i don't think any of the stories are black and white at the end of the book of job um after god has appeared and uh had had this you know majestic self-defensive uh, epiphany throughout the whole book job's friends have been accusing him accusing job because he is accusing god and when god appears he doesn't say thank you for defending me to those people what he actually says is hold on i, ha I actually have to look it up because i want to get this right He says, um, God says to Job's three friends, he says, you have not spoken the truth about me as did my servant Job. So, you know, like everything in the Hebrew Bible, I think it's it's actually not black and white. On, on close inspection, things are uh, always a lot more complicated than you expect them to be. And in today's episode, the uh, connection, the clearest, you know, most explicit connection with uh, the history of uh, intelligence organizations and secret police has been um, between, first of all, the uh, Asian provocateur, the adversary in the book of Job, who is explicitly modeled after the uh, king of Persia's secret police. Uh, and then we saw some other, I think, really interesting connections with the Russian intelligence officers and the origins of the protocols of the elders of Zion around the turn of the 20th century, around the turn, around the turn of the 20th century, around the time of the Russian Revolution. So moving forward, I'm going to keep exploring this. Um, a couple immediate ideas I have are... Uh, uh, the British occultist Alistair Crowley. There's a book about him, a biography that lays out uh, a case for him having been a, a British spy. And so I'd like to take a closer look at that. And I don't know. I don't know if it can be a whole episode, but I'm really interested in the affinities between um, demonology in the sense of, you know, for example, the Inquisitioners trying to find demons and the agents of demons at work in their communities in the world, in Europe, and more contemporary espionage, the search for hidden adversaries. And I think that that's a, actually a fine note to end on, that in talking about religious stories and myths and uh, mythical narratives, it might be easy sometimes to lose sight of the fact that symbols also point to realities. Sometimes they cover them, hide them, distort them, but I don't mean to give any sort of impression that I don't believe that there's actual danger in the world or actual adversaries, actual um, individuals with malicious intent and the desire to harm their adversaries. And I certainly don't want to give the impression that I believe that um, the contemporary intelligence community is bad, you know. Um, it, it's easy for people in the general public like myself, um, you know, if, if all you see about uh, the American intelligence community is the, uh, you know, the church report from the, what is it, 1960s, 1970s, and then you know, more recent uh, controversies about um, extraordinary rendition, it's easy to, to uh, um, develop a very negative impression of what goes on and, and what the, uh, those communities are all about. And I think that the big lesson um, in this exploration I'm doing here is the importance of not passing judgments, not making judgments based on inadequate evidence or, you know, allegations and accusations that aren't backed up by adequate evidence or even worse, just based on personal prejudices and likes and dislikes. 
especially in situations where people's uh, safety or their well-being is at stake, you know, the importance of critical thinking and um, and acknowledging the uh, limits of your own information. And to be willing, I guess, like Carl Jung, when you don't know, to say, I just don't know. I don't have enough information. I'm going to leave you today with a, a short story. Uh, it's a traditional Jewish story. I believe it comes from the Talmud. The story is, I think, a, a commentary on a passage in the Talmud, which in turn is about this, uh, about the book of Numbers and possibly the section we, we were talking about earlier where the Jews were wandering in the desert and God afflicted them uh, with uh, uh, skin disease. Um, I actually, I think I said earlier that they were criticizing God. I think they might have been criticizing Moses rather than God, but um, one way or the other, this, uh, the, there, there's this, this uh, story about a Rebbe and uh, there was a, a man in his community who was going around slandering the Rebbe, you know, speaking bad words about him. And um, eventually he had a change of heart, and he came to the Rebbe and asked for forgiveness and asked what he could do, you know, to make it up. And so the Rebbe, the Rebbe gave him, you know, some uh, instructions about what to do. He said, you know, take a couple feather, feather pillows and go on top of the uh, highest building in the village uh, and, you know, tear them open and throw the feathers to the wind and then come back to me. And the man, you know, did what he was uh, instructed to do. And he came back and asked, um, you know, he said, I, I, I followed your instructions and can you please uh, uh, forgive me? And um, the rabbi said, well, now, you know, there's one more thing to do. Now go collect all the feathers and bring them back to me. And, um, you know, the man said, I can't do that. It's impossible. And uh, and so then the Rebbe told him, yes, of course. Um, even though you regret what you've, the evil you've, you've done and you may, you know, you wish you could correct it, repairing the, the damage that you've done with these words is as impossible to repair now as it, it, it would be for you to go collect those feathers now that they've been carried out by the wind. And the reason that I'm uh, including the story at the end of this is uh, I, I'm still thinking about the Protocols of Zion and the context in which they were first published. You know, it was um, a, a small village in Russia. We know for a fact, you know, that the, the, the printing house it came it came, it was originally published in uh, a local newspaper which was uh very pro tsarist and propaganda propagandistic that it was it was a newspaper for pu publishing it, propaganda about the tsar it was the fox news of the tsarist russia and you know i it was it was uh, um part of a group called the black hundreds who uh you know there were indeed um Russian Tsarist secret intelligence agents or intelligence agents uh, involved in the Black Hundreds. But it was a very small context. It was a very small village where this book came out. Uh, I mean, it wasn't even originally a book. It was originally like a series of articles when it was originally published. And um, in a very small context, yes, it led to, uh, it contributed to, I think, the first big major pogrom. It was the, the program at uh, Kishinev, I think it's called, um, which is bad enough. But once that book was out there, you know, it. I don't think they ever could have foreseen where it was going to go from there, you know, and that and that the words that they were, the, the propaganda and the uh, um, the evil words that they were putting out there would go so far and play such an important role in the Holocaust. You know, I don't want to end on such a negative note. Um, so in order not to leave this, you know, just as having been a short, you know, lesson or lecture about how bad the uh, Russian anti-Semites were, um, I'll say for me and I hope for you that I hope that this uh, will be a reminder for us about uh, 
the seriousness in our own personal experiences of speaking good words always and kind words, words that are compassionate, words that uh, don't make other people look bad, um, because you never know. You really never know how far a negative word could travel or what its eventual fruit, fruition might be in the world. And I also found this prayer from the from Hofetz Chaim, who was a rabbi in uh, Belarus, and he wrote this uh, prayer for divine assistance, and it's a prayer against Lashon Hara. He goes, Master of the universe, may it be your will, compassionate and gracious God, that you grant me the merit today and every day to guard my mouth and tongue from speaking evil talk and gossip, and may I be zealous not to speak ill even of an individual, and certainly not of the entire Jewish people or a portion of it, and even more so, may I be zealous not to complain about the ways of the Holy One, blessed be he, May I be zealous not to speak words of falsehood, flattery, strife, anger, arrogance, hurt, embarrassment, mockery, and all other forbidden forms of speech. Grant me the merit to speak only that which is necessary for my physical and spiritual well-being, and may all my deeds and words be for the sake of heaven. Amen. May Hashem forgive me and bless you.